Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, Episode 4. I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Jonah Bennett, and we're joined this week by... Uh, I'm Ash Bolton, Managing Editor. I'm Wolf Tyvee, another editor. As always, the first thing we're going to start off with is the reader question of the week from the mailbag. And uh, let me just pull it up here. We've got it here. It is... If you had a time machine that would work only once, what point in the future or in history would you visit? So I have a pretty specific one. I would go to Rome under the reign of Antoninus Pius, middle of the five good emperors, empire at its zenith, and see how much we've forgotten about that time period. And then like find my favorite groups and tell them to buy land before everything goes to hell. Wolf? Um, I think I would go to the court of Charlemagne. I've been reading about Charlemagne recently. I'm uh, very impressed. Obviously, Europe was a little bit ruined at the time. It's sort of the Dark Ages, but uh, it seems like they were doing a good job, and it's a very interesting time. I think it would have to be something like 610 million years ago, because I feel that, you know, the the real first decline of, of everything uh, started when when we moved from single cell to multi cell organisms, and so I want to see it as it as it happens. I think that's the most important historical point. All that's right, what it that's heard of that. relaxing vacations, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, that's enough of that. Let's get into the material itself. Ash, why don't you talk about uh, Ben Sixsmith's piece? Yeah. So uh, this piece, the title is Bernard Henry Levy is the comic romance of liberal technocracy. So uh, this is kind of an an interesting reflective piece um, uh, started with looking at the figure of uh, Bernard Henry Levy, who's like the archetype of the French public intellectual, um, much uh, polarizing as a figure. Uh, because he, he he generally aligns with broadly sort of neoliberal opinions, um, and thus a lot of people both on the right and on the left in France and globally um, kind of really dislike him, view him as very pompous. Uh, but he is still like a, a, a figure who remains on the stage. And so this piece starts with a reflection about him and how he became who he is today. I'm going to skip over most of that part in this uh coverage because it's in the piece people can read it and i want to jump to the reflections that came out of looking at uh levy and his career and basically um there's two major focuses that uh this piece came to both of them quite interesting and it's basically about how does the figure of the great man manage to exist in a liberal democratic technocratic society like uh, as you go through history, different periods of history, it doesn't really matter what the value system or time is. You always have these great man figures who come to be viewed as embodying the currents of the time. So you have figures like Lenin and Stalin under communism. You have Napoleon Bonaparte in the French Revolution. You have Augustus in the Roman Empire, uh, and so on and so forth. But these figures, by their nature, end up quite powerful, quite disruptive. And in a liberal technocratic society where things are based on, it's a rules-based social order, um, institutions are generally more important, or at least institutional continuity is more important than having these hyper-talented individuals. And so even though those people can bring a lot of value, they're also inherently disruptive to these technocratic systems. So uh, the one of these reflections was about 
that tension uh, between these two, because obviously with the populist upheaval, uh, you've had figures on the right and on the left who people have built these romantic political mythologies around. Um, obviously, people like Trump and Bolsonaro on the right. Uh, you have figures like Bernie uh, on the left in the U.S. Uh, Corbyn in Britain functioned to an extent as one of these figures as well. Um, taking people who had felt excluded from establishment systems and putting a face and a personality to these ideals that they were pursuing. Uh, and obviously, regardless of the political background, these are viewed with suspicion by the establishment. Uh, and in a sense, the moment you have one of these uh, r romantic individual great man types, uh, or at least, you know, they're playing a Vox Populi sort of role, uh, those figures are considered a threat, and they because they are. This is a rational estimation on the part of these technocratic systems, uh, because day-to-day -day functioning won't survive if we assume that these people gain power. Uh, the other aspect of Levy, personally, that the piece focused on was, okay, so given all of this, how does this romantic figure, uh, or at least, you know, someone who self-brands as a romantic figure, get to maintain this privileged position in the median political landscape in French society, which is, after all, part of this uh, Western technocratic order. And the, the conclusion it comes to is somewhat interesting, um, because it basically ends up pointing out that Levy's career is based on being this gadfly figure, right? He flies into these war zones, usually uh, upgrades his story of how things went while he was there, comes back, he'll release petitions, try to rally public, other public intellectuals, but he doesn't actually have any power, right? He has no institutional control. Um, he isn't responsible for his decisions or his rhetoric. He can kind of pop in and out, and once his moment of fame is over, uh, he can just go on to the next thing. And so essentially what's happening here is liberalism, or at least these liberal institutions, can tolerate him because he allows for the return of a, a sense of romance and a certain type of adventure to the face and the, the life of liberal technocracy, which is otherwise uh, antithetical to that kind of uh, atmosphere and that kind of politics. But it's it's acceptable because he's relegated to the margins. Uh, and so th this is why it's a comic romance. It's kind of a performance getting put on where you're able to have romance and adventure without power and without anything that's of consequence that the the establishment itself would feel threatened by. Because if anything like that comes up, they're not beholden to what this guy says. Uh, those, those are his views. And so th th this kind of makes it this comic romance phenomenon. Uh, so those are the two main main points in the piece. What this reminds me of is um, things like sports and Netflix. Like it, you know, it's sort of the sublimation of these human drives for adventure and, you know, group conflict and all this uh, into this stuff that's sort of ultimately completely impactless, sort of not real. Um, and yeah, so this, you know, you, you get these characters acting in this great man sort of role, except that they're not actually part of the game. Uh, but, but insofar as people kind of need to, uh, need to feel like there is, 
this adventure and these great men, they kind of look up to those characters, uh, but but by detaching them from the actual system itself uh, and making it a form of entertainment almost, it, it kind of um, makes it safe. But of course, it also makes it um, uh, sort of a lie. It, like the people are not actually having... Uh, people are sort of uh, kept, kept uh, satisfied by something fake, um, which, which is sort of like an interesting... Uh, feature of the thing. I'll note that uh, you know, Ash, your description of of BHL's work as as quote upgraded is <laughs> pretty generous, because in certain cases that we highlight it, it, that that Ben highlights in the piece, uh, it's very clear that that it's just his accounts in some cases are just fabricated. Like in the Georgian Ossetian War, uh, you know, there's this. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the fellow guests at the hotel said that uh, he's just, you know, in the foyer puffing out clouds of smoke and uh, gesticulating meaningfully. And then he goes on, Levy goes on to say that he saw the city of Gori burned and pillaged. Uh, he had never even, you know, been there and it, and it was still standing. So uh, this brings us to the wider question of when you're in the end of history is adventure even possible? Yeah, well, I just I just wanted to jump in on your point there because it's definitely true, right? and, and as you say, he, he's lied about stuff. But I actually wonder how important that is uh, to the role that he plays because oh, not any at all. great not at all. man I'm just, figure will kind of... Of course, of course. But great, these, you know, because if we look at someone like Augustus or Julius Caesar, right, they, they also had these personal mythologies that they developed... Uh, I guess the thing that makes it contradictory, obviously, in the modern time is that there's all this rhetoric that comes out about post-truth and alternative facts. And, you know, this has become this wide discourse that everyone engages in. But in fact, uh, the creation of like a romantic narrative is... From the, from, from the perspective of the system, uh, this embellishment is actually crucial, Yes, exactly. Because the the whole point of a romantic narrative is that it elevates you above the the day. At least, even if, even if it's not contradictory, at least uh, it's taking the day to day experience and it's wrapping it into this wider narrative that transcends you individually and maybe even you know reaches across generations. Well, I mean, again, my analysis is basically that it's entertainment. It's fictional entertainment. Essentially, it's not different in kind from Netflix or sports. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I've heard it said before that these public intellectual figures are somehow unique to France, or at least they aren't present in the Anglosphere. But I don't think that's true. I mean, if you look at like prominent faces on, on you know these cable news shows or talk radio for a previous generation or the, the big podcasts, right, that people listen to now... It's not quite the same in that this elevated intellectualism isn't as valued in American culture, but they play the same role. They put faces to the narrative and they can rally people to vote for their preferred political figures or sign petitions or make make memes go viral even. Uh, so these nodes exist in the Anglosphere as well, but it's in a way that's geared toward the more maybe egalitarian uh, or, or even populist to an extent culture that we have. Yeah, I guess it's it's interesting, like the, the figures in the West 
or in, in the Anglosphere, I guess, that that would be analogous to these French intellectuals, have much less sort of institutional dignity to them. They're more uh, just like, oh, I'm just a news anchor or just some podcaster guy. Like, it, they're, they're folk heroes rather than uh, sort of institutional heroes in a way. Maybe, the, maybe some of the closest uh, things that have, have come to a celebration of intellectual culture or or at least on a pop level in the US would be I don't know people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye or even people like Jordan Peterson or of course during the earlier 2000s you had the new atheists and they were extremely popular on a on a more like public intellectual level uh, but of course they don't seem to have the same dynamism and style that you might see in France and of course you know, they they haven't yet adopted a lot of the kayfabe uh, mannerisms that maybe someone like Zizek has, because I, I, I think a lot of his uh, mannerisms are pretty put on for the camera. And and uh, our culture, our intellectual culture doesn't quite do that in the same way. There might be put on positions, uh, but not so much in the way of, of style. Like, well, because I, I think- Anglosphere cultures people need to seem authentic and honest and that's sure. why you you so it is put on but you have to at least seem like you believe what you're saying and as as we mentioned in the piece if we're looking at at the new atheist specifically uh you know hitchens was the closest to this archetype and he kind of represents a longer tradition actually of every so often you get these larger-than-life characters in journalism, whether it's Hunter S. Thompson or Tom Wolfe or Christopher Hitchens, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of, a lot of their shtick is embellished. A lot of it is a bit try-hard. And, you know, descending from that, you kind of get a bit of a weird tradition where everyone's trying to pretend that, that they're an awesome journalist because, they you know, they follow Hunter S., Hunter S. Thompson's routine of waking up at 2 p.m. and doing a bunch of acid, doing a bunch of cocaine, uh, et cetera, et cetera, writing a little bit, eating breakfast, and then, you know, going to sleep at 4 a.m. or something or whatever. I can't, I, I can't remember exactly how his routine went, but it was something similar to that. And so, you know, there's a tendency among people who ad- admire these larger-than-life figures to kind of... Uh, do weird, sickly, pale imitations of that and and think that they're particularly excellent because they got drunk on like a, a Thursday morning or something. Anyway, that's a, that's just a little bit off topic, but it kind of, I, I don't know, it, it strikes me as, as something like maybe this is what you do when there's nothing real to do left. Like you just indulge in, in like base vices because at, at, some le- at some level it's more costly than just normal behavior it's more interesting than just normal behavior but it's not something like i snuck into yemen uh and embedded with the houthi rebels and uh lived to tell the tale and wrote an adventure story on it that that is like maybe a little embellished but that would be something real to me uh and something truly costly as opposed to yeah i'm just i'm just uh wrecking my life with uh you know overdoing it on on drugs and alcohol so there's a distinction that we can make here between uh, the the cult of personality 
and how the thing you're describing there. So there's a line in the piece, I'll just read it really quick. Cults of personality work because they take, take abstract ideals and embody them in a living, breathing, and acting human being. So that's what's going on, right? These figures are able to create narratives around themselves that followers can plausibly believe they can participate in by copying manner of life or uh, rhetoric or things like this. And as a result of that, uh, that's how you get this copy effect. But you mentioned earlier this question of, is adventure possible uh, at the end of history? And I actually think that's probably a distinct question from this. So when ISIS was on its uh, uptake, when it was still expanding, a lot of people commented on the fact, because there had been this narrative that these are uh, this is stemming from economic problems. People who have no opportunities are trying to take a chance here. But actually, a lot of people who were going over were going from some of the richest countries in the world. Uh, you had people going from the Gulf countries, from Europe, North America, Australia. And the question, obviously, is, well, if economic uh, fallout is the driving factor here, that doesn't make any sense. And really, you can only contextualize this in some kind of model where people people in wealthy societies where basic needs have been met do in fact look for adventure. And if it's not found, and in the case of ISIS, obviously, both their explicit ideology and also the, the way they wanted to implement their views made them unusually disruptive. Uh, obviously if you're not trying to create some kind of new state, you can probably do this in more low-key ways. Uh, I mean, even even the Vice uh, documentary phenomenon, right, where you had reporters going and embedding for a while with cannibal generals in uh, Liberia, I think, was one of them. These yeah, are lower-key cool. things. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, it was cool, because these are lower-level uh, or lower-cost, less disruptive ways of doing the same thing, where you're not trying to, like, destabilize the whole society but you get to step outside your day-to-day -day existence where all your basic needs have essentially been met. So adventure is possible, but the the more disruptive it is, the more of a threat you actually become. Or you can stay in D.C. and do a bunch of drugs and pretend to be Hunter S. Thompson. It's it's really up to you. Right. And so people who don't, who don't want to be disruptive, they have moral qualms or they just don't have the personality type to do the sort of actual adventure seeking themselves, that's where these personality cults can be the substitute because they can live vicariously through someone else who does the same thing. Because to take ISIS again, right, they had all this propaganda being pumped out to uh, you know people on Twitter who were living. They never left their whatever comfortable country they were living in, but they would tweet and retweet uh, ISIS propaganda videos, and they would flash mob uh, their opponents on Twitter and talk about the stuff like the punishments that they'd meet out when the caliphate spread, uh, and they were living vicariously online. So the cult right. of personality is a substitute for adventure, essentially. Right. I wanna, I, go I ahead, take, Wolf. Yeah, I want to take this out of the sort of psychological angle. We've talked a lot about sort of people's need for adventure and, and the disruptiveness of that adventure if it gets too real. Uh, there's a whole other dimension to this, which is just like the 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 actual condition of the end of history, so to speak, where things where 
well, there's there's sort of this fundamental tension in any complex system between the proceduralized parts and the adaptive parts, um, and and sort of the adaptive parts are sort of best represented by these dynamic individuals who uh, use their judgment and uh, an agency to sort of uh, pop outside of systems, think about the actual reality and build some new piece of system uh, or, or make some sort of material change to the systems. And then you have, of course, the, the proceduralized sort of interior of the system that has been built by these founders. Um, and there's always... Uh, I think going to be some kind of tension between these modes of being. And so we've got right now um, what's sort of in, in a lot of ways a very proceduralized system, or at least it aspires to be very proceduralized to like uh, annihilate the role of the individual in a way um, and, and sort of make it like this, this big collective process where like theoretically the individual's desires are taken into account by the machinery of the system, but it's not actually individuals doing things. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, like I said, I've been reading about Charlemagne, you have Charlemagne's court, where it's like this, this very, very human thing, it's very much individuals doing things, the systems are uh, very weak, the, the they're not, not very much there. It's just like, a bunch of people kind of carrying out their lives. And then and like, um, you, you get these these great characters running around, and, and you know Charlemagne's always like taking specific individuals in and out of roles, and it's all about the the trusts and the relationships between the individuals. Um, and so those are sort of like two opposite poles of of sort of how society could be: this sort of modern, very proceduralized pole, and a and a very individualized human agency pole. Um, and I think. Like if we can talk about the pathologies of these things, like the uh, a system dominated by human agency is going to have a hard time with the routine and like scaling and just uh, stability in a way. And then on the other end, you have where you have a system that's dominated by rules and proceduralization. You're going to have a really hard time with um, doing fundamentally new things. Um, and responding to changing circumstances. Yeah, so a really and, simple version of expressing the trade-off between them is that the more a system depends on any given individual, the more fragile it is. Uh, but also the more that dynamic. Now, right, because a, a system that's independent of individuals can't benefit as easily from hyper-talented people. So it has a harder time absorbing uh, or ex letting people express talent as well as being dynamic in adapting because you have to change a whole system rather than just making decisions. Yeah. And I, I think it's not like there's going to be, you know, one of these modes that's, that's better than the other or some like balance that's permanently the right thing. Obviously you want sort of a different balance of institutionalization and sort of dynamic entrepreneurialism. Uh, depending on your circumstances, it's a little bit like a commercial airliner versus a fighter plane, right? Um, the 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 analogy is pretty direct <clears throat> in terms of like stability versus control. Um, so in a in a commercial airliner, the airframe is optimized for stability. If the thing if there's a little bit of a perturbation, it'll kind of just naturally float back onto you know being aimed forward, being upright and flying stably whereas a fighter plane 
um, well, well the, the, the downside of, of a very stable airframe is actually that it takes a lot of control force to move, to move it, to change its direction uh, or, or to control it. Whereas um, if you have a very unstable airframe with, with like a very active control system, uh, if, if something goes a little bit off, you can, you can sort of like, especially if the control system goes off, you can lose control of the thing much easier. It's not stable. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to, to work with, but it can maneuver much faster. It can respond to circumstances much faster. And so that's why like a commercial airliner uses a very stable airframe and a fighter jet uses an unstable airframe. Um, and so it's like, a, it's going to be a similar thing. There's sort of this engineering problem in society of, do you want a very uh, maneuverable society or like a particular institution? Do you want this institution to be very maneuverable, in which case you want it to be sort of dominated by these heroic individuals? Or do you want it to be very stable and dependable, in which case you want it to be dominated by sort of uh, bureaucrats or even uh, automated systems? And and it's just it just strikes me that that there's this interesting trade-off and and in a lot of ways, the kind of end of history narrative has has really privileged the bureaucratized, technocratic, systematized view against this uh, uh, sort of against a more dynamic um, and responsive mode of being. And I, I would think that what you would see there is a system that seems very stable, but then very suddenly uh, could come, a, come upon some very... Uh, very severe problems or, or a collection of very severe problems that cause a catastrophic breakdown because it has been unable to adapt to, uh, to those circumstances as they come up. So there's a question I want to throw out. Um, as was mentioned in the piece, so liberalism itself in its early period in the 19th century actually has a number of romantic figures, people we still consider or we still view in that way. So people like Washington or Lincoln in the U.S., uh, you have figures like Garibaldi in, in Italy, these romantic generals. Even Napoleon, for a certain type of liberal, might be viewed as a, a heroic figure uh, in, in some of the reforms that he brought through. But particularly in the 20th century, sorry, in the 20th century and post-World War II, liberalism, to a degree, started defining itself in terms of no single individual really having decisive power and an institutional rules-based order. So the question I want to throw out is, is this institutionalism inherent to liberalism, or is this the result of just a, a global order that is now outside the control of any individual, such that uh, another ideology would face the same um, institutionalizing effects? So I, I think there's sort of two parts to this. One is how much institutionalization do you need to provide the stability that's needed by, for example, modern um, sort of deep supply chain industrial economies um, and, and stuff like that. Uh, sort of obviously the all that stuff is built on a very stable legal system and a very stable political system. You need to be able to make uh, long-term plans to be able to build complex systems, um, which means you need to have sort of dependency. You need to have uh, assurance of, of the stability of the underlying rules. And so I think in that sense, the modern world inherently requires quite a bit of institutionalization of um, 
of of some some significant fraction of the order especially the part that sort of provides rules that other things are built on um, those things inherently have to be sort of bureaucratic or automated um, but also you could imagine um, you could imagine individuals with with sort of vastly more power commanding huge components of the economy or huge components of of systems um you know by means of of hierarchy and and enhanced systems of control and so on like you know you look at jeff bezos commanding this enormous industrial machinery of amazon um or elon musk you know working on tesla and 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 spacex um, or you look at, you know, these, these big generals, hero generals in World War II. Um, it's not like you reach sort of fundamental scaling limits on what a single individual can control because that individual can have other people under them working on subcomponents of the problem such that they're working on sort of an abstracted version of the problem so that even if they have a limited bandwidth, they can actually be working on a very large problem. Uh, by having having sort of people under them work on the various parts and that's so like hierarchy kind of involves almost arbitrary scaling i would think um, so i don't think you have a fundamental limit on how much individuals can run huge systems but i think it's going to come down to like the optimal balance of uh, how much of the system is rules that other order is built upon versus how much of the system needs to be able to dynamically respond to uh, big new opportunities and threats. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out in that way that the same phenomenon happens in the private sector and corporations and the like. Uh, and this is the classic founder problem of how do you carry on the talents of a dynamic founder. I mean, to, to harken back actually to our intro question, uh, when I mentioned the five good emperors, one of the telling uh, or one of the classic practices that they had, uh, not really on an institutional level, it was more due to circumstance and the fact that they didn't have children, but they would adopt their planned successor as a legal son and thereby secure a stable succession. Because what generally happens when, be it in a government or a corporation, when someone with a lot of uh, power as a founder or a CEO steps out, there's a bunch of other members of the board, say, or departments in a company or ministries in a government. Each of them wants to expand their power. And unless you have that vacuum at the center filled, uh, it's going to happen at the cost of the coordination of the overall organization. Uh, and maybe this this could be part of what goes on uh, that because each subcomponent of the organization wants to expand its own influence, there's a trade-off uh, in coordination of the whole. Ergo, rather than having someone in control of the whole organization commanding that level of power, the subcomponents are more comfortable having some kind of rules-based institutional way of doing things that, that normalizes relations between them. But obviously the cost of that then is that it's hard to really put individual talent back in once that's occurred because once once that vacuum is filled it's very rare to get an individual coming in and reversing that dynamic unless they do it through massive disruption yeah so i i think this is a really interesting topic the sort of the the subtleties of succession um so what you're saying is definitely true that like if if the founder steps out of their role 
without filling that vacuum, you have you can kind of get a lot of dysfunction. So you have to either fill the vacuum with some kind of proceduralized system that that doesn't allow uh, that, that sort of freeze, freezes a particular dynamic in place um, that will probably work for a while, or they replace themselves with uh, a relatively competent um, executive. Um, and I think it, it's so it's important to sort of look at what is the theoretical role of that executive, like the, the successor executive. Their role is in a sense, like why do they have to be an individual rather than a system? And I think the, the reason is that their role is fundamentally kind of an adversarial role with the subcomponents of the organization. Like like you were saying, the, the subcomponents of the organization, not necessarily looking at the big picture, even if they're in, sort of acting in good faith, they're going to want to, they're going to obviously think that their, their thing is the most important, or they're going to be most acquainted with the problems facing their thing. And so they're going to want to appropriate resources to help solve their problems and, and grow their own influence. Um, and so you get this kind of adversarial uh, dynamic between the, the sort of subcomponents of the organization and each other and between the subcomponents and the center. Um, and so you need to have sort of a strong center that's actually able to outmaneuver them. Um, which requires that dynamic individual kind of role because it's an it's a role of agency, not just a role of like uh, execution of rules. Um, and so that's sort of the reason you need an executive there. Uh, though in some cases you are able to uh, get away with succession by a sort of proceduralized system. And um, so this is another another point I wanted to make is that the role of a founder in these things is inherently or, or the role of like a dynamic individual is inherently sort of a zero to one kind of thing to, to cite uh, Peter Thiel's concepts from his book. Uh, it's 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 zero to one in the sense that you are that the strength of that role is to cause something to come into existence that did not otherwise exist or to cause some change, some discrete change, like an, an actual event rather than an ongoing duty. Um, ongoing duties are sort of things that can be uh, contained within some specification and thus, uh, and just need to be executed over time. Um, and, and those things are sort of better filled by like bureaucrats and, and proceduralized systems. But for, for sort of dynamic new things, you need individual founders. Um, and so because the individual founder is inherently kind of a zero to one sort of task, um, it's important to distinguish the founder from, you know, the, their successors. Like even if the successor is still an individual, that individual is carrying out a different role than the original founder. The original founder builds this institution. The successor is not in the same, is not the same kind of thing with respect to the organization because the the you know ideally the founder has completed their job they've created the new institution and now they need someone to fill this particular role that does require a dynamic individual which is to sort of dynamically balance the parts um and and carry out strategy and so on but there's there's that important distinction that i that i think is important which is the between the, well, just that that a founder 
is inherently doing a kind of one-off task. That is the strength of individual judgment is to handle a one-off task. And when you have a repeated task um, or a more predictable task, then you're looking at a very different sort of type of, of uh, person to fill that role. Yeah, and the result of that is that because institutions can tackle that more easily, you now have the trade-off not only with talent, but also with these the ways that individuals can mobilize people by force of personality that institutions often can't unless it's some right. kind of rules-based procedure. There's an interesting phenomenon that occurs uh, in countries and in firms that have had these sorts of founders where later on when the the bureaucratic structure, whatever it is, has grown, they will invoke the memory of that founder uh, or or of the sort of influential figure and draw off it to create some sense of that same adventure mobilization. So in the U.S., obviously, there's certain presidents that people will rally around. Um, people like FDR maybe on the left, or Washington, exactly. Um, but if, even in businesses, you, you have these great founders. Uh, I mean, look at the the Disney Corporation versus the, the figure that they were built around, or uh, the, you know, Ford, for example, the the genius uh, and the organizing ability of Henry Ford versus the corporation as it is today. Um, so there's this, it's not free riding really, because there is obviously an actual investment that went into the position of these, these prior great men being what it is. Um, but notice that it allows those organizations, again, be it countries or corporations, to invoke that figure that no longer has any actual influence or say, either because they've left or died or what have you. And that actually makes it quite similar to the BHL phenomenon, where he can be tolerated because he's just a media figure. He has no power, and no one in power has any inherent duty to follow anything he says. Likewise, this uh, living on the memories of previous figures, yeah, I mean, you can put anything into the mouth of uh, what some uh influential leader or founder would have wanted when they're not around to correct you about it uh i mean we're even seeing it right now uh in in kazakhstan right where nazarbayev is stepping down and one of the first acts is going to be to institutionalize his memory as the the founder of modern kazakhstan by changing the name of uh, astana to uh to be named after him um and and we see this all over and when a new figure, a new disruptive figure comes along, usually what happens is either that they will themselves invoke the memories of these previous figures, or else sometimes they'll actually minimize them because they're they're threatened uh, personally by this competing ghost from the past, uh, even though they, they usually aren't actually present anymore. So it, it's interesting that this banishing to the fringes exists in, in both of these phenomena. Well, I, you know, I have a lot more to say on this topic as well, but we are way over time on this article. So let's move to the, the Turkey piece entitled After the End, Life in Post-Globalization Istanbul by Daniel Weissman. Uh, it's a fantastic piece. Um, basically, we had this idea of, of looking at some city in the world that's 
been in a bit of a post-globalization phase, and by that we mean sort of uh, separation or withdrawing, or or it could be a combination of withdrawing and being pushed out of the the Western order. And so when we say globalization, that's kind of the context we mean it um, in. And so we we basically chose Istanbul as as kind of the right right place to to look as a at least a first example of of this phenomenon. And it seems that uh, Erdogan's party, the AKP, which is the Justice and Development Party, over the last decade, uh, and and even before that, uh, has been working hard at bringing together a a coalition that actually had a chance at 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 winning electoral politics, given the you know tense history in Turkey's past of uh, you know secularism from Ataturk. Uh, in the public sphere, and the tradition of of strong uh, Islamic heritage. So, you know, he basically used neoliberal development to to sort of placate the West and to also placate the secularists, because the common model is that neoliberal economic development sort of inexorably leads to uh, sort of like liberal social development as well. And, and I think that there is a tendency for that to be the default pathway, but I think for Erdogan that was not in the cards, uh, that, that's not what he was aiming for. And so he, he, it was sort of an act of a personal exercise of agency to take the country in a completely different way. Um, and so the first move out of the global order, I think, was around, as we said or as, as Daniel said in, in this piece, um, was the Gezi Park protests of, of 2013, which, yeah, there was, you know, it was sort of about a demolition of a public park to make way for, you know, an Ottoman-themed tourist attraction and shopping mall, but it was also sort of a flashpoint for criticisms of the, of the AKP uh, being a little bit too aggressive about their moves towards... Islamicization in the public sphere and becoming too autocratic and uh, too worried about social vice, too uh, too worried about uh, or, or or too ma- making it too much of a priority to crack down on on free speech and so on. So at at that point, uh, you start to see a a pivot away from the Western order and and more to developing relations with Russia and China. Uh, and so now that there's been a lot of pull out of in- investment and so on from the West, we wanted to see what life is was like and and whether it's still possible for uh, there to be a flourishing polity outside outside the Western order. We, we discussed this a little bit recently on the last podcast when we had Miguel on Miguel Morel on to talk about the Venezuela article. Uh, but I think if we're looking for a, a much more plausible candidate, uh, you know, of a, of a country that's capable of living outside the Western order, then, then Turkey is just that because it's much more uh, favorably geographically situated. Uh, if, you, if you put Turkey uh, just about where Venezuela is, I think it would have very similar problems to what Venezuela is suffering from. But it does have the good fortune of being much closer to China and Russia and so, uh, you know, we did a we did a bunch of interviews 
which was fantastic. It's always good to get that on the ground perspective. As as usual, it seems that uh, you know in Turkey there's a conspiratorial mindset about politics that would put the American one to shame. So if everyone's getting too upset about QAnon, you should spend some time living uh, in Arab countries or in Turkey for a while. Uh, I think you'll be uh, you'll be glad to to come back and, and only have to deal with QAnon or some other like JFK assassination conspiracies or something like that. Um, but I think the rest of the article is is a great read. It talks about the uh, development of relations with other countries and the fact that, you know, maybe here, uh, as one good example, the city, you know, is going through a tough time, but the people are hopeful, things haven't really collapsed. And really, the main attribution seems to be that that this is part of a natural economic cycle as a part of, as a as opposed to this is a direct result of cutting off ties with the West, and we should seek to uh, restore those that that didn't seem to be the main thread that that we found there. Yeah, so there's uh, something that I wanted to look at in the piece, and it gets discussed, I think, after the interviews, because this is a theme that comes up, how people are going on with their day-to-day life, uh, despite all these things that are happening around them. There is, on the one hand, this media narrative and these crazy geopolitical events that are happening. And then there's the the day-to-day job of trying to figure out where your next paycheck is coming from. And the thing that struck me when I was reading this piece is that this pretty much is true in any society. So you can be living in the rise of an empire and your personal experience might just be, oh, wow, food is suddenly getting cheaper and uh, I, I suddenly have a new city that I can sell some goods to. Or you can live through the decline and your experience is something of the opposite, uh, where things are getting more expensive and suddenly there's a region that people don't really want to go to anymore. Uh, any any society is like this, and it it's just a good perspective to have where we we assume that these great shifts that happen are felt by everyone in the society. I saw someone on Twitter actually making the same point, uh, so I'm glad that people are discussing this. But actually, none of these events, uh, unless you're actually at the center of power uh, in some way, these events by the majority of society are not immediately present. Uh, and you, it, it's often even difficult to judge, uh, as, as in this case, where it, is this actually just part of a natural economic cycle that maybe got worsened by some of the political decisions and that will end, or is it part of some larger trend that in 100 or 200 years, Turkish intellectuals will look back on and consider extremely important? Um, these are very difficult judgment calls to make. Yeah, and I think failing to understand this point is why you occasionally get uh, articles in the Western press kind of baffled that life is going on normal in certain war-torn areas, uh, like Syria, for example. I remember like three years ago or so, there was a, a piece that w- was was creeping through a lot of Instagram accounts in Damascus and was like, why are these people still having parties? They look like they're still having fun. Maybe there's more of a social fabric in, in, in war in, in war-torn Syria and then also in, in Damascus than, than where I'm living. And that kind of sucks. Why are these people having so much fun? That's weird. And, and I think that's because uh, it's very used 
it's very, very easy to get used to uh, war that's very uh, near you if it goes on long enough. Um, it's, like it, it, it's just it's just not that like it maybe it takes six months, maybe it takes eight months, but it, it becomes routine and expected. And, you know, maybe people die at, at slightly ar- around you that you know of. Uh, they Maybe they die at a slightly higher rate than car accidents or something, maybe like five times the rate or 10 times the rate. But, you know, I think most people only start really noticing these things or, or really caring about these things when it starts hitting people on their block, when it starts hitting people in their family, uh, when when food shortages uh, get really bad. But I think even then, if there's good enough social fabric, it's just to them, it's just something they live through and their families have lived through periods like this, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago anyway. So for them, you know, it's it's very cyclical uh, and they've they've never yet lived through a period of, say, like 50, 60, 70, 80 years of uninterrupted peace. So so to them, uh, it, it's it's a sort of business of as usual vibe almost like they've, they've just they've just grown accustomed to it yeah this even applies in a way to the role of conspiracy in turkish politics uh, i think you mentioned this earlier and it gets somewhat discussed in the piece where tur- turkish politics is and this goes back centuries of the ottoman period and before uh even the byzantine era the, the politics of of istanbul uh and prior to that Constantinople were run on conspiracies and given there's this general rule of thumb that we can maybe posit where out of the number of conspiracies flying around uh, or conspiracy theories rather some proportion of them are true maybe we can posit that that proportion is slightly higher in Turkey um, but you know regardless of whether that's true or not people living their day-to-day lives at least feel that this is true. And because of that, uh, even the experience of weird conspiracies happening doesn't fundamentally undermine the daily going on of life. Because we see in the US now, uh, which has no lack of its own conspiracies, but on the mass cultural level, there's a lot more, uh, you know, if something goes on or, or is perceived to be going on in US politics or in the government, it's a really big deal because, uh, as uh, I sort of mentioned earlier, the idea that you should at least try to seem honest and trustworthy is still important in in Anglosphere and American culture. Uh, but here we see people essentially assume at any given time that there's any number of conspiracies at play, that power is obviously going to be dishonest and trying to expand its own power and might even make up entire narratives of conflict to where well i i, I think i think you can see this uh in the, in the us like if you're looking for what co- what 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 are the causal factors here it's something like as as people tend to lose trust in all the leading institutions of society uh their prior is that when they don't have when these institutions are not particularly legible they don't know the internals, what's going on, or the actual reasons behind actions. They tend to assume malevolent motives. Um, and so if, if you basically look at the graph in the U.S. of trust in these social institutions, it's been a pretty linear decline, I'd say. Uh, and I think 
the highest one is maybe the military at this point, but most other leading institutions have suffered absolutely uh, devastating hits to their reputations. So I think that that's probably a major cause uh, in the rise of conspiracy culture in the U.S. And, and this would, in my opinion, apply probably to other countries as well. Yeah, and it's something you can generally see in countries uh, that are institutionally weak, that the military ends up being the most trusted institution because it's viewed as having some degree of honesty, you know, either because their role in, in war previously is respected or because maybe they're just viewed as having less of the nonsense of uh, electoral politics or academics or so on. Um, I'm, I think it would be good also to look at just the more general political context of this article. Uh, so in, in prepping for the podcast, I was just looking up a bit of the rhetoric that has come out of Turkey, specifically with regards to its relationship with the U.S. and the involvement in the Middle East. And I mean, at this point, the rhetoric is quite openly confrontational um, when it comes to the Kurdish forces, uh, the YPG and so on. Turkey is essentially openly calling people who the U.S. is backing terrorists. They're demanding the U.S. turn over uh, bases to them when they leave. They, they were quite openly glad that uh, Trump had wanted to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria. Uh, and, and then you, you have things like weapon systems being bought from Russia. So although it's still at this point a NATO member, uh, I think the article posits that might not be the case for much longer, although I'm, I don't think there's actually a set mechanism for removing a member from NATO. But the on-the-ground situation is that uh, this is not really an alliance. This is at best a serious rivalry, and perhaps they're actually just military opponents at this point. So I think this would be worth getting into a bit more. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, Turkey's been pivoting to Russia and China, and in the recent case of Venezuela has offered uh, at least his public support to Maduro. And, you know, I think Venezuela has something like, what, seven or eight billion dollars of gold reserves abroad. And while they, you know, the Bank of England has cut them off from accessing that because, you know, according to the U.S., uh, the current regime is, is not authorized to have property rights over those, those gold reserves anymore. But certainly that's not the case in Turkey. Uh, Turkey's not going along with that. Uh, Turkey now understands, I, I suppose, that membership in the EU is is no longer on the table. It might have been 10 years ago, but it isn't anymore. Um, there, there have been, you know, very near conflicts between uh, Turkey and the U.S. in Syria um, over, as you mentioned, YPG support. They've you know, Turkey has had a bit of a problem with uh, Kurdish terrorism and in, in Turkey itself. And they're not particularly when they're in when Turkey is interested in Turkish nationalism, the idea of a entirely separate culture within its territory is not particularly this. The state doesn't look particularly fond on that. And so from Erdogan's perspective, the U.S. is is funding funding terrorist groups right across its border, and of, and of course it would be upset about something like that. Uh, and from the U.S.'s perspective, they might say something like, "Well, uh, you know, these people aren't terrorists per se. Uh, you know, at, at least as far as we've done our vetting, they seem fine." And then Turkey's response would be, "Well, uh, you know, these people obviously have links to PKK, and so." 
this separation that you might be describing between organizations by giving them separate names is is awfully artificial and the weapons are going to flow that way regardless so if you continue to do this this uh uh if you continue to train and advise and arm local ypg militias and those weapons end up in kurdish terrorist hands what's the difference there is no difference as as from the turkish perspective so and then and then you have allegations from the u.s as well of of turkey uh engaging in provocations by allowing ISIS fighters, foreign ISIS fighters, and there have been tens of thousands of them, many of which, many of whom who have um, flown first into Istanbul and then and then crossed the border over to Syria without any real efforts at stopping them. Um, and this is partly, you know, from the Turkish perspective, there are a couple reasons why they might want to allow this. The first is that uh, obviously, you know, at, at the time, Islamic State was not fond of Assad, um, but Islamic State was also going to be fighting these Kurdish groups. Uh, and so from from Turkey's perspective, it's it's basically a win win from the U.S.'s perspective. Uh, it's all just and, and from Turkey's perspective now, when you when you look at it, this is all just a proxy war taking place in Syria. And, and as a result, you have a proxy war between NATO members. And, and how does this make sense for continued membership? So I think if there is no formal mechanism for removal in NATO, it might make sense to just reorganize uh, the thing completely. NATO just falls apart, becomes something else uh, that that more accurately describes the formal realities on the ground. Yeah, note Brazil's recent elevation uh, by Trump as a key non-NATO ally. Uh, we know Trump has definitely been looking at securing American influence in the Americas with friendly governments. Uh, so this would actually make sense as one potential shift that as Turkey uh, moves outside of the NATO sphere, uh, NATO is actively looking for other countries which can begin as non-NATO, NATO-aligned countries, and who knows, maybe at some point, see uh, full membership. So I want to talk a little bit about about Erdogan, because his background story is, is pretty remarkable, actually. Um, so he was born in, in, in 1954 in a pretty rough, rough neighborhood of Istanbul, basically a working-class family. Um, and, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, he, he ended up serving as mayor of Istanbul from 1994 to 1998. Uh, and while he was serving as, as mayor, he read parts of a religious poem by Turkish nationalist Zia Gokalp in uh, one of his 97 speeches. Uh, and he just, you know, in 2003, he described that to the New York Times as a bit of an attention getter. And the problem with that with that poem is that, you know, it, it was pretty infused with religious language, which from the perspective of the Turkish state wasn't something to be permitted. And so he was, you know, his, his title as mayor was, was stripped. He was imprisoned for four months. Uh, I think from, from March, 1999 to, to July, 1999. But the key thing here is Erdogan is so from, from my understanding of him, from my 
study of him. He he's so crafty that this might have been a calculated setup in advance because uh, he he only essentially served four months in prison and he became somewhat of a, a martyr-like figure uh, as a result of that. And maybe he took a, a look at 20th century politics and realized that going to prison for a little while uh, as in order to make yourself a popular martyr and and build support for a wider election campaign down the road is actually, or a, even a coup campaign down the road, is actually a really successful strategy. Uh, and it's been done done multiple times. And as it so happens, in this case, he emerges from jail, uh, you know, as a, as a total hero in, in Turkish Islamic society. Um, and, you know, he, he goes basically from, from this moment to, to founding the AKP in 2001. And, and then a year later, they win a landslide in the general election. And after the ban on Erdogan serving in politics is, is lifted, he, he becomes head of the country, essentially. Um, and, you know, what's remarkable, too, is that he managed to, uh, despite having a, a much more radically Islamic, if you want to use that phrase, mentor, uh, he managed to pragmatically uh, soften that a little bit so that he could build a successful coalition that would send him into power and also to have the patience and long-term thinking to say, okay, we're in the early 2000s right now. You know, it would be unfortunate to to reveal my hand at this point, but give it 20 years and Turkish society is going to look different. And in fact, 20 years later, Turkish society looks a lot different. And there was a bit of a last, last gasp attempt to... Uh, by the secularists and, and some other factions a few years ago to unseat him in the 2016 coup. And, and it didn't work. I mean, maybe it almost worked, but it didn't work. And since then, his control over Turkey has only solidified. Uh, so I, I, I think it, he, he has quite a, a remarkable, remarkable past. And it's when there are so few figures like this in political life, uh, you know, it'd be, it would be maybe not quite, but as if Bezos had decided to go for a political career instead of founding Amazon, because I'm, I'm quite sure that, that, uh, Erdogan could have been a successful businessman, uh, purely without any, uh, entrance into politics. And he decided to continue on with politics anyway, which is, which is fascinating. Um, well, actually, uh, before I go too far on down on this monologue, Ash, why don't I ask you a question about whether Erdogan is capable of cementing his power in, in the long term? I know you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, so in this case, this is where we get from uh, drawing on a bit of what we talked about earlier from the individual to how much you can institutionalize the the grand mission that he's sort of shaping for the country at this point um and here is where a very typically eurasian uh approach to this comes to the forefront which is that because these countries are extremely diverse and especially a city like istanbul uh has a lot of historical currents 
uh, whirling around in it in a way there's multiple vectors of power that can be drawn on there, and two that come to mind immediately are first its role uh, in the Turkic world. Um, so there was a, an incident that happened recently with China's actions in Xinjiang. Uh, obviously, the uh, Uyghurs there are a Turkic people as well, and part of Turkey's uh, national myth has been that they're kind of a, a leader, a protector. Um, within the more uh, within the broader Turkic world, and so as a result of China's actions, there had been a lot of condemnation coming out, especially from the the Muslim regions, um, that Turkey was doing nothing to denounce what was occurring in China's western regions, and uh, as a result, finally in February, Turkey released a public statement, uh, basically condemning the, the re-education camps, uh, saying that they were shameful, uh, I think explicitly mentioning things like torture. Um, now, my, my personal guess is that there was probably a lot of bilateral diplomatic work getting done on that statement, and the uh, Chinese counterparts knew exactly what was going to be said and had their response prepared. But it shows that Turkey is willing to at least have a public confrontation, uh, at least on the level of a war of words, with someone they're trying really desperately to win as a long-term ally, because it wants to be seen as this uh, premier country within the Turkic world. The other one is the Sunni Muslim world. So uh, people, Erdogan has made uh, a name as someone who's brought the Islamic identity back to the fore in Turkey, where this had been extremely unacceptable in politics, and even in a lot of the country's social and cultural life, uh, things like religious garb uh, were looked down on and there were restrictions, particularly in more elite institutions like universities. Um, that direction has shifted uh, under Erdogan. Uh, and it used to be the case that, you know, within the Muslim world, Turkey is technically a Muslim country, but it, it was kind of viewed as a joke, you know, to call, call because they drink alcohol, uh, and, and its cultural norms were quite out of step. And within the Sunni world, it was Saudi Arabia and these uh, Gulf Arab countries that had really taken a leading role. Uh, they were funding programs around the world to teach Arabic and to carry out religious instruction. And as a result, they became extremely powerful in the Sunni world uh, on a religious level. Now, Turkey... Put, but. There's also now been conflict uh, for a number of reasons, we, we don't really need to get into all of it now, um, where a, a lot of the Sunni world is also dissatisfied with the Gulf countries, they view them as politically corrupt, uh, there, there's questions of hypocrisy and so on. And Turkey has a, a role that they can play here too, because they have a, a very distinctive um, approach to Sunni Islam, very different in a lot of ways from the Arab, uh, the Gulf Arab approach. Uh, and for parts of the Sunni world that are looking for an alternative, um, a building up of Sunni institutions that are intended to be global in reach in Turkey would actually give them quite a lot of influence. And obviously, as a country, uh, they there is this Ottoman brand that Erdogan is trying to invoke, uh, and it's not just a geopolitical brand, it's also a religious one, um, because the historic caliphate was also centered here uh, for, for a number of centuries. Uh, and so 
the, these worlds overlap somewhat, but they're also distinctive because North Africa is Sunni without being Turkic. Uh, meanwhile, there are parts of the, there are a number of Turkic countries throughout uh, Eurasia which are more nominally Muslim but uh, don't have quite the, the history and role uh, currently and especially after communism that they have historically had. So being able to create a center across these two axes of power is definitely one way that Erdogan will be able to cement his influence and we can see that happening in some of the architectural developments even that are discussed in the piece. So I, I think he's definitely thinking in terms of institutional reforms. The question, uh, again, as we discussed earlier, will be, will he be able to create a succession uh, for the extremely strong executive that he's created, or will his eventual stepping out or passing or whatever happens leave a vacuum open where uh this will fall apart and the country will kind of re return to several factions fighting for control at the very least he seems to be able to uh have reproduced his role as mayor uh you know the piece notes that he's managed to install several of his uh allies in as as mayor and not even via election per se but via action of, of the city council, I believe. So he, you know, he, he is thinking long-term, certainly. I, I, I'm not sure about whether he's thought of successors for his own role specifically, or I mean, I'm sure he's thought of them, but I don't know if there are any live uh, options right now. And, and even then, he still has plenty of time left to go. Um, although if another coup is tried that's successful, maybe not so much. Yeah, I well, I mean, in a sense, he's done more to purge the existing institutions of opponents um, and r rather than having to replicate new ones. So th this was another direct benefit to him. Obviously, it was, I think, within the week following the coup that these lists were getting produced with thousands and thousands of names on them. Obviously, no one believes that these were written up after the coup attempt Right, happened. right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, a, you know, a benefit in disguise, really. Mm -hmm. Because it's yeah, and I mean the, the perfect. This is exactly I mean, and, and of course there the, were some explanations. The culture of conspiracy is so widespread in the country because these things usually turn out to have very direct benefits, which people are very well prepared to implement. That's right. I mean, it was a live explanation in the early days uh, following the coup that in fact the coup was just a false flag. That doesn't seem to have been the perspective adopted over the long run. But certainly a lot of people suspect something like this. I don't personally think that that was the yeah, case. I mean, but. It, if we speculate a little bit on what it might have been, we didn't touch on this much in the article itself, but sort of looking at the sequence of events, you can kind of get a, get a feel for what the various actors are going to be feeling at various times. And, you know, following the... Uh, wherever the protests came from in, in 2013, the Gezi Park protests, um, it, it sort of started to become clear that Erdogan uh, wasn't going to be going along with the socially liberal part of the uh, liberal uh, program. Like he sort of had the neoliberal plus Islamic thing going on. And, and I guess there was an assumption that he would eventually, you know, that would, that would eventually lead to also socially liberal stuff like, uh, you know, democracy and um, more social liberation and so on. And sort of, it, it became clear that that wasn't 
where things were going when they came down quite hard on the protests demanding um, more, you know, more freedom of the press, more democracy, etc., which was part of part of the grievances of the Gizzi Park protests. And so as that became clear that that uh, that Erdogan wasn't going to be going along with that, then, you know, suddenly the factions in Turkey that are strongly aligned with uh, secularism and with the Western order and, and in particular the uh, the sort of moral component of liberalism, they would suddenly be feeling a, a more existential situation where it's like, okay, the, the, the game is somehow open now um, and, and Erdogan is actively moving away from the liberal order. And, and so you could speculate that those factions felt, you know, it, it's, it's go time or we're going to lose it. Um, and, and so in many ways, like some commentators have noted that the, the coup looked, um, very badly prepared, uh, like, like it had just sort of been, been called together as a desperate last move. Like, uh, there was speculation that, that Erdogan had, or, or that the, uh, ruling party had, uh, cracked their communications or, or something so that, uh, they, it was basically like go time or they were all going to get purged anyways. Uh, so I guess they went for it, but, but, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what happened, but, but if you were those opposing factions, uh, aligned with secularism, that would have been sort of around the time to do it. Um, and then, yeah, like it, it really did provide Erdogan, uh, the opportunity to consolidate power, you know, and this is interesting. It's like, whenever you have actually these upheavals within a system, where there's something like a coup attempt, you get the ruling faction really, uh, when they put down the coup, they're actually very strongly energized by it. And, and their rule becomes, it, it, like it, it in a way resolves a question of how powerful they are and how willing they are to rule. Um, and so after the fact, it becomes very clear that, that yes, they are in charge and they're willing to rule. And this is something that sort of Erdogan has has shown a few times uh, here in this story where, like, you know, there was some question about how committed he was to something that looked like part of his platform. Um, and, you know, mostly on the, the sort of how seriously does he take the Islamic thing. Um, and and he's sort of shown over and over that actually, yes, he's quite serious and he will use the force of the government to put down resistance and uh prop, prop up that dimension of his platform yeah it's worth noting as well um and this is in fact a sort of third vector of power that i didn't mention earlier but when erdogan is thinking about these rivalries he's not by any means uh constraining himself to turkey proper uh even in the turkish diaspora particularly in europe in places like germany and the netherlands where there are a lot of Turkish citizens living abroad, he's viewed them as a really important part of his base to the extent where during the referendum that happened in, I believe it was 2017, to expand executive power, he was sending government figures to campaign in those communities. Uh, and there was, in fact, uh, an infamous incident which occurred where the Netherlands expelled uh, a minister uh, who was giving sort of campaign speeches. And uh, Erdogan pretty... 
viciously attack the country. I think he referred to them as actually like Nazi remnants, uh, which if you know the country's history, uh, it was a low blow, but it he he knew clearly uh, what buttons to push in these sorts of encounters. And the fact, I mean, this is an ongoing thing with Erdogan where he he sees himself still as important enough to the West and to the United States that he can go on these very blatant attacks and not suffer too much of a cost. But the the reason he's wanting to do that, the goal that's in mind is this consolidation. Yeah, the, the thing that's uh, important to note there on sort of how important he is is like a lot of the nuclear missile bases and so on, or the maybe the air bases. I'm not sure exactly the details, but there's there's... Uh, I'm fairly sure there's nukes, American nukes stationed in Turkey. And, and so like during the coup, there was some question of what's, ha- what's going to happen with that stuff. Because, you know, from the Cold War days, Turkey was this very close ally uh, geographically to the Soviet Union. Well, uh, I think that's about all the time we have this week for episode four. This has been the Palladium Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. All right. That was a lot of fun.